We're looking at the subject this morning of the elements of worship, continuing on in our study. We have looked at uh, the reading of public prayer as being an element, the public reading of scripture as being an element that's important, and now we come to the third and fourth, the public preaching and or teaching of God's word. Paul's charge to his protege, Timothy, is found in verse 2 of our text, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Timothy, preach the word. Timothy was a young Christian that Paul met on his second missionary journey. Let me read it for you. It's from the book of Acts. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised Timothy because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So that would mean he was not circumcised. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. That was the Jerusalem council. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they grew daily in numbers. Acts 16, first five verses. From that time on, Paul became the spiritual mentor to young Timothy, who grew in knowledge and wisdom in the scriptures under the tutelage of the apostle. And Timothy became so adept at ministry that Paul sent him to Corinth with this endorsement. For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Now, if you know anything about the church of Corinth, you know that with the corruption, the politics, and the sin present there, it would be no place to send a rookie. So by this time, Timothy was well-trained in the scriptures. As our text indicates, verse 2, he had the knowledge and capability to use God's word to correct, rebuke, and courage with great patience and careful instruction. So, though young, in comparison to Paul, his senior, Paul instructed him in our text from last week, 1 Timothy 4, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scriptures, to preaching, and to teaching. 1 Timothy 4 verse 12 and following. Now it's true that Paul had a number of other co-workers including women. You can read the list for yourself. It's in Romans 16. But among the men there was Luke 
physician, a, doc, a physical physician, a doctor, who traveled along with Paul on his missionary journeys. And some think because Paul's health was not the best. There was a man named Silas that you know about. There was Titus, a book in our Bible carries his name. And even John Mark, who wrote Mark's Gospel, traveled with Paul for a time. But there was a special affinity for Timothy, whom he called, My son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. I'm guessing here that because Timothy's biological father was a Greek and an unbeliever, that he took little interest in the spiritual teaching of his son. Just the opposite for his Jewish mother and grandmother. If you look at the first chapter of this book, verse 5 and following, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. Now, brethren, sometimes, sometimes in um, mixed marriages where one spouse is a believer and the other is not a believer, it's the dad. It's the dad that drags his feet in spiritual matters. And I think, I'm just guessing here, it's because of pride. I'm the man of the house and, you know, no wife of mine is going to teach me anything. And so because of stubbornness and obstinacy, they refuse to learn of God through their wives. But you know we have people sitting right here this morning, right in our assembly, who came to faith in Christ because of the testimony of their spouse, be it wife or husband. So that, don't discount that. That's often the way the Lord works. We ought to be praising the Lord about things like that. Well, in the providence of God, young Timothy was adopted, can I say adopted spiritually, by the Apostle Paul, who became like a father to him and his spiritual mentor. Titus was another such man. And Paul's letters, plural, to Timothy, first and second Timothy, and his letter to Titus, also in our Bible, have been designated as the pastoral epistles. Epistle just means a letter. The pastoral letters, because in those books, First and Second Timothy and Titus, in them are given instructions to candidates for the pastorate by none other than the Apostle Paul himself. What an astonishing thing to be taught, to be mentored, to be encouraged, to be corrected, yes, by Jesus' own hand-picked apostles. No present day, no past day seminary has ever had such solid, thorough teachers as we have in the pastoral epistles handwritten by Paul. But you know the beauty of this is that having that handwritten account of Paul's instruction to these men concerning ministry, concerning the worship of God, we pastors and all who aspire to be teachers of the gospel may, as it were, 
sit in the school of learning taught by the apostles. Not only the Apostle Paul, but Peter and the others. We can do this, we can trust this as being appropriate and relevant for today's ministry because, guess what? The word which Paul enjoined Timothy to preach is the word of the living and the unchanging God. Let's hear it from God's lips alone. God says, declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exalt. All that from Isaiah 45, verses 21 through 25. You might ask the question, well, what about the possibility that that God has changed his mind. And along with that, his message. To ask such a thing is to suggest that God is too much like us. We change our minds because we do not know everything there is to know, past, present, and future. And so we, we adapt. If we make a decision that proves to be folly, wisdom and humility demand that we change our minds, right? And if we don't, the foolish course of conduct that we have chosen will lead to our destruction. So we had better change our minds. But God says of himself, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what's still to come? You see, his knowledge here, it's different from ours. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Isaiah 46, verse 10 and 11. Now, this is not braggadocio. This is not some arrogant sinner saying, I'm going to do this, and I plan this, and we're going to go here, and we're going to do this or that or whatever. The gospel tells us you ought not to make plans like that. The gospel tells us you ought to say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this or that. Why? Because you don't know the Lord's will and you don't know the future and you don't know what's coming. So you may have to change your plans. But God can say this and it's not braggadocia because no one can thwart his plans. Think of Balak, an enemy of Israel. 
It was a king and an enemy of Israel. And he hired, he hired Balaam to call down a curse on Israel. Why don't you go out there and stand on that hill and curse the nation of Israel. Now his motives were evil. He planned that if the curse fell on him, he could conquer the Israel and overpower them. But as God would have it, Balaam called down a blessing on Israel instead. And this infuriated King Balak. So his explanation to Balak's, Balak was this. Now listen to what Balaam says about God. It's so important. God is not a man that he should lie. Nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot change it. Numbers 23, verse 19 and 20. Wow, what a statement about God. God's not like men. <laughs> Don't put him in that category. He can't lie, cannot lie. And he does not make promises that he doesn't fulfill. And I have received a command to bless, not curse. So that's what's come from God. And guess what? I cannot change it. Don't be mad at me. I cannot alter what God has said. And brethren, it is because God does not change his mind ever, ever, that he can say through Paul to Timothy, preach the word. His word is his will, declared on the written pages of Scripture, and Timothy, along with all true gospel ministers, must preach it without tampering. If we do tamper, we proclaim ourselves wiser than God and false preachers, of which there are many in our day. Now, secondly... What then, if any, is the difference between preaching and teaching? Let's begin with the first one, preaching. What's preaching? Well, the Greek word here is a Greek word, caruso. I remember a, a tenor, great tenor, that had the name caruso. Guess what? Here it is. This is the Greek term. It means to proclaim after the manner of a herald. Well, that's something like a tenor would be when it was singing an area or something, right? So anyway, I don't know how he got his name, but there it was. To proclaim after the manner of a herald, always, get this now, always with the suggestion of formality, gravity, not lighthearted, and an authority that must be listened to and obeyed, to proclaim openly something that has been done. In the case of the gospel, something God has done. That's what preaching is. We're proclaiming something that's been done. In the case of the gospel, something God has done. 
Now we learn from this that the message given is not original to the speaker. No, the speaker is speaking for another. He is just the publisher, uh, the spokesperson for the message. But the content is hitherto the product or the message of another. Even in the English dictionary, if you look up the word herald, here's how it is defined. One that conveys news or proclaims, that is, an announcer, one who actively promotes or advocates, that is, an exponent. Do you know that God's ministers are both? They announce, like a herald, and secondly, what they announce, they promote, thus becoming an exponent. Behind this, of course, is the reality that they are speaking for another, in this case, God. And so it is not their prerogative to interject their own ideas into the message given forth, nor to alter it to the liking of the hearer, and paramount to the word itself, we ministers must be believers or advocates for what is preached. Think about this. Would you want to come and listen to me preach if I'm preaching one thing and, and then I don't really believe it. I just, I'm just standing up here parroting somebody else or whatever. So, the principle is true to what God declares in the word, believers ourselves in what God has said. And it is as men depart from these two principles of preaching that heresy and consequently great harm occur to the hearers. In verse 3, Paul warns that this is going to happen. Look at it. For the time will come when men will not put up <laughs> with sound doctrine, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths, to fiction. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4. Peter says essentially the same thing, writes Peter, but there were, he's speaking of the past, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been asleep. Second Peter 2, the first three verses. Now Peter took his cue from the wicked prophets of the Old Testament times, who in the name of God taught their own spin on things. For example, Jeremiah reports, and he's talking to God, and he says this, Ah, sovereign Lord, 
the prophets, the prophets keep telling them, the people, you will not see the sword, you will not suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. And then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them. I have not appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the decisions of their own mind, the delusions of their own mind. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, yet they are saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by sword and by famine. Jeremiah 14, verses 13 through 15. So Peter's right when he refers to the false prophets of the Old Testament time. In short, these prophets in Jeremiah's day were men of the ministry who had no endorsement from God. They were doing their own thing. So why would anyone want to go into the ministry to do their own thing? For greed or prestige, or some other carnal reason, they became ministers who had the audacity to teach the delusions of their own minds as though such were God's word. And you know what? The people ate it up. Sounds good to me. They ate it up because Jeremiah's true message of coming famine and sword was unpleasant to hear. And so the people opted for teachers, as Paul describes in our text, verse 3, the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they'll turn away from the truth to fables because of that. Brethren, I think it's human nature. No one likes to hear negative messages. Uh, every time we come to a presidential election, right? If the politicians start doing their ad campaigns and it's overtly negative, sometimes that works against them. Because the people, you know, they've had it up to here with the negativity. It's kind of like what well, my grandma used to say, if you can't say anything good about anybody, don't say anything at all. Did any of you grandmas ever say that to your kids? Uh, or you've, you've heard that. Well, people kind of have that. You know, it's like, we don't want to hear all the garbage. We know about the garbage. Just tell us something positive. Well, God's ministers don't relish the idea of proclaiming judgment. But as heralds, we don't get to pick and choose what to declare. We must say it as it is. Even if the truth hurts, even if the truth is disturbing, and there is healing in truth, but there is destruction in lies. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you hold to my teaching... If you hold to it, you're really my disciples. And then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. 
John 8, verse 31 and 32. And even on that occasion, they took issue with Christ. They said, well, you know, we are, we're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anybody. When the surgeon says to you, there's only one way to destroy the cancer that is eating away at your kidney, I'm going to have to cut out the diseased organ. You will have three months of difficult recovery, but you will live. Negative. Mmm, something we didn't want to hear. Well, would you rather hear the truth? Or would you prefer the surgeon to say, Well, you know, the kind of cancer that you have is very slow-growing. You can likely live for many years with no ill effects. And to ease your pain, we can treat you with Vicodin. This latter statement may indeed be more soothing to the ears and pleasant to hear, but it's deadly counsel because managing pain is not the same as curing the source of the pain. God's word, because it is God's word, always presents the truth. And like the surgeon's scalpel, Hebrews 4, verse 12 states, the word of God is living, it's active, it is sharper than any double-edged sword. Think scalpel. It is sharper than that. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I would say it this way. It gets down to the nitty-gritty where the problem is. And it is that judgment, that conviction of God's word that exposes sinful thoughts and sinful actions which frees people from deluding themselves with placebos that numb the mind but never get to the root of the problem that needs to be dealt with. So here's the question. Do you want to be numbed? You're set free. Do you want to be placated, soothed, cajoled? Boy. Or do you want to be reconciled to God? There are plenty of false preachers around peddling their stories and their wicked interpretations of heaven and hell that can make you feel good about their message. But if you swallow the poison that they peddle, you will die. You will. God's preachers, emphasis on God's preachers, are compelled to announce, and, and they are also not only announcers, but exponents of the gospel of God to tell you the truth that will set you free from sin and the impending wrath of God. I'm advocating this morning, you need to opt for that. I don't care how hard it hurts, how convicting. I had a number of people say last, of, of last week's message, boy, that was very convicting. And I'm saying, I'm saying to them at the door here, good. It's not, then I know that God's word has gotten into their hearts and not just me pontificating on something. Good if you're convicted.
It's the first step towards recovery. That's preaching. That's what we need in our day. And that's not what we're seeing. Well, what about teaching? That's the other one we're told to do. Preach, yeah, teach. We heard this in Paul's charge to Timothy as we studied last week. 1 Timothy 4, verse 9 and following. This is the trustworthy saying, saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive. That we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity. And until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the Scriptures, to preaching and to teaching. 1 Timothy 4. 9 through 13. The verb teach is the Greek word didasko. And it means to use discussion or dialogue to impart knowledge. The noun form is didaskalia, that which is taught, in other words, doctrine or precepts. Now I'm sure you noticed that both of these Greek words have the same prefix. They both begin with D-I-D-A-S, didask. Okay? So, didasko, teach, the verb. Didaskalia, what is taught? The noun. This prefix is carried over into English in the word didactic. An adjective describing teaching, especially of moral of a moral nature. He gave a didactic discourse in his lecture this day, talking about teaching that has a moral to the story, to the account. So, what's the distinction? Well, in preaching, there is a declaration, a heralding of the subject matter with little or no response from the audience. You just listen. Now let me teach. Say, well, who do you <laughs> think you are? Just a humble servant doing God's work. The subject matter in preaching is not up for debate because the material given forth is God's word. It's not the preacher's word. The Old Testament formula for preaching or proclaiming, and I'm sure you're all familiar with this in the King James Version, in the NIV, something like this. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. Exodus 10, verse 3. Well, Pharaoh refused to listen, as he did many, many times as Moses confronted him. And on this occasion, God sent locusts to devour all the vegetation of Egypt. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Here's the formula. Now, it's found everywhere in the Old Testament. Jeremiah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Jeremiah 28, verse 2. Ezekiel. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nation. Ezekiel 5. Verse 8. Or the prophet Amos. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Amos 5 
verse 4. And you'll find that formula all the way through. Now you'll notice that none of these proclamations were up for debate. God was simply making a declaration of his intentions upon his sinful people, and that was final. This is what I'm going to do. Preaching today ought to be so saturated with, this is what the Lord says, that there is no equivocation on what God is saying. Now that only happens when men adhere to the scriptures alone, as Timothy is told in our text. Timothy, you need to preach the word. Preach the word. Unfortunately, lying preachers like lying prophets tell stories that they have made up and they teach as though truth, but the figments of their own imagination. So there is debate about what they're saying from the pulpit, and rightly so. They're not preaching God's word. We are living in the days of Jeremiah all over again. We read from Jeremiah, From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike are practicing deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Jeremiah 6, verse 13 and 14. Notice how, again, he brings in the medical aspect. They dress the wounds of my people as though they weren't serious. Preaching, if it is the heralding forth of God's word, should be received with faith and action. So that's preaching. With teaching, there is discussion. There is debate because the speaker, could be the preacher or another believer with the gift of teaching, is attempting to answer sincere questions posed by the listener. So what we do on, when, on uh, Sunday nights, not in this Constitution series that we're doing, but normally in our discussion times that we have downstairs, is, is teaching. What George was doing this morning in the adult class was teaching. The goal in teaching is to clarify, and in many cases, uh, what the preacher has declared. Doug's been doing that with the book of Ecclesiastes. As I said, George... This morning, taking Doug's place for the, for the day. Same for our other Bible school teachers. Same as for our children's church staff working with our children. Our people who conduct Bible studies in their homes. All of these things are people teaching. Teaching. Now, teaching doesn't mean we become sloppy about content. It must still be biblical. Paul to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, All the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So you get this idea of, I taught you, Timothy. You teach reliable men. They're going to go out and teach others. 2 Timothy 2, 2. Titus was told, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Titus 2, verse 1. What's the pattern to be? Paul puts it out there. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So 
that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15, verse 4. We're back to Jesus' promise. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So that's the distinction between preaching and teaching. And, there's, you, and you see some of the similarities. They're both teaching God's word, both relying upon him. Now, what's the obligation of those who preach and teach God's word? Let me talk a little bit to the teachers this morning and to the preachers here this morning and to those that aspire. Paul says to Timothy in our text, be prepared in season and out of season. Preach the word, then he says this, be prepared in season and out of season. What does that mean? The reference to seasons is a farming analogy with a twist. Solomon in Ecclesiastes says this, There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 2. Jesus told the account of a farmer who sowed seed on his land and then his disciple asked him to explain the parable, so he did. And this was the explanation. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word, and at once he receives it with joy. But since he has no root, it, has, it lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Matthew 13, verse 19 through 23. Well, there's a lot of lessons here in this text, but there's, there's different soils, Jesus teaches, the different different kinds of people who respond differently to the gospel when they hear it. That's one lesson here. Uh, we learn that Satan comes along. He's present to snatch away any good that might come from the message. He doesn't want people to believe the gospel, to repent and be saved. But consider, too, that this farmer, who is Christ, sowed the seed of the gospel, can I say, indiscriminately. That is, he did not simply sow seed on good soil. But he sowed the seed anywhere, everywhere. In season, out of season, where convenient, where it's not wasn't, wasn't convenient. Now we're worried about whether, oh, let's see, I know what the, what, where the seed is falling, what soil it's going on. He just sowed it everywhere, where, humbly speaking, it might be considered a waste of good seed. <laughs> Hard pan, the path, thorny soil. Why would I want to 
broadcasts good seed into thorny soil. Brethren, he's teaching here, he's teaching Timothy, broadcast the gospel to all. And if you keep waiting for a convenient time to do it, the convenient time will never show up. You just got to be ready. You sow the seed. You don't know the condition of men's hearts. You don't know what God will do. The results are left to God. You're not to worry about that. You just do your part. You need to preach the word. And you need to do that in season when you think it's, well, this is a good, this is planting season. <laughs> yeah, this is the time when we plant. It's in the spring. We harvest in the fall. No. Jesus says, get out there and sow the seed. So that's one aspect of the preaching ministry. We're to broadcast. Secondly, he says, correct and rebuke. We read today a number of pronouncements from the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, that I'm sure the people of Israel did not appreciate hearing. In fact, for that very reason, false prophets arose to say to the people, Peace, peace, when there was nothing waiting on the horizon but famine and sword. Pastors are people too. We like to be liked. We want to be well thought of by our audience. But God's truth cannot be altered from what he has said if we're to be faithful to him. There's an account. I like reading this account. It just reminds me of the ministry. There's an account in 1 Kings 22 in which Ahab of Israel conferred with King Jehoshaphat of Judah. This was when the kingdoms were divided in the north and south. And he wanted to form an alliance with Jehoshaphat against the king of Aram, or Syria, to the north. That kingdom to the north had been raiding the borders of Israel for three years. So Ahab has had it up to here with being raided. So he says, Jehoshaphat, why don't you come form an alliance with me and we'll go out and fight against the king of Aram together. Well, Jehoshaphat agreed to the alliance. But first, to his credit, he wanted to hear from God's prophet if he should do this. Remember what James says? You don't go off into some country and say, I'm going to do this or that. No, you say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this or that. Well, now it has to do with warfare. So what did Ahab do? He, well, he summoned his 400 prophets who to a man said... Go, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. 1 Kings 22, verse 6. 400 voices saying, yeah, oh yeah, go for it. Jehoshaphat had the godly discernment to sense that these prophets of Ahab were simply paid lackeys of the king. And so he asked if there was a prophet of the Lord available. Here's the response. The king, of Ansar, the king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, Well, <clears throat> there is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. And the king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. 1 Kings 22, verse 8. So even Jehoshaphat thought, 
Boy, you shouldn't be saying that about God's prophets. I hate him because he prophesies bad concerning me. Well, long story short, Micaiah was summoned and he was pressured by the man that fetched him. The man that fetched him said, look, uh, you know, as, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. Wow. We're back to 400 to 1. Remember another occasion? Jezebel's prophets. This is her husband, Ahab, so it's the same guys. Well, you guessed it. <laughs> Micaiah, verse 23, said to King Ahab, The Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Ahab responded, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me but only bad? consigned Micaiah to prison with a diet of bread and water. Ahab could not handle the rebuke. He could not handle the correction that Micaiah brought to the lies of the false prophets who were paid to please. <laughs> and Ahab lost his life that day in battle. And Jehoshaphat nearly so. But God protected him. Preachers and teachers of the gospel must be true to God's word, even if it is rebuke, even if it's correction of sinful behavior, because it's the only way to please God and to do the people good. If you say, I come under conviction when you preach, I'm saying to you that's good. That's the Spirit of God using his sword to expose your sin. And then one more thing here. Paul says to Timothy that, that his preaching should encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The latter part of verse 2 there. There's two Greek words put together here for this word encourage. It's the Greek word para and the Greek word kaleo. Para meaning alongside and kaleo, and you can hear this in the word, to call. Kaleo. Parakaleo then means to call alongside, to come alongside of someone for the purpose of lifting them up by entreating them to walk with you through the valley of darkness into the glorious light of the gospel. Give hope to the downtrodden is the idea of the word encourage. The noun form is paraclete, we also have that in scripture, and it is used of the Holy Spirit, of whom Jesus promised, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, King James says, and Ivy says counselor, well, the word can be used either way, but comfort is better because of the idea of building up or holding up, and we do that through our counseling, so I see the, the import there. I will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Or again he writes, The comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. There's the counseling part. 
and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. So that's John 14, verse 16 and verse 26. And the reason he says another comforter is because Jesus has been a comforter. That's been his ministry. He hasn't been beating up on the disciples, the people that are his believers and followers. He's been a comforter to them. And when they've been in sorrow, he's tried to help them through those times. Do you know that this is the task of all of us, not just preachers and teachers? Let me read it for you. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews 3, verse 13. We're all to be encouragers. You know that that's Barnabas' name? That's what his name means. Barnabas means son of encouragement. We're all to be Barnabas, according to Hebrews 3.13. Okay, from where do we obtain the material for our encouragement? They want to hear your opinion? They want to hear psychology? Paul writes, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance... And the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15, verse 4. How do we encourage one another? Well, we say something like this to the hurting brother. Well, you know, the Lord put me through a similar thing, and he brought this verse to mind that might apply to you. Ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. We don't encourage one another in, in, in the spiritual matters by saying, well, here's the way I would handle it. And then we pontificate on our opinion or what we've learned in the school of hard knocks. What, you're, what you've gone through may not apply, but the scriptures always apply. So we need to be students of God's word because the time is going to come when you're going to be asked to be a com- comforter. You're going to be called upon to encourage, to be called alongside, to put your arm around somebody that's hurting and lift them up. That's the work of ministry. And I say it's for all of us, not just preachers and teachers. May the Lord bring that kind of ministry our way. Help us to grow in loving preaching, loving teaching, and to do the work of ministry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We know it's the sword that cuts deep at times, but it's a good cut. It's a good scalpel. It does things in our hearts and lives uh, that the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of men, even good-meaning friends and acquaintances, Uh, It does things that that their word, their advice cannot do. Because it gets to the heart of the matter. How so? Well, only because you know our heart. Our friends don't know that necessarily. They don't know our inner need. They don't know where we're coming from. They're trying to guess. They're trying to be a friend. They're trying to, to, to... See where we're coming from? All these terms that people use. 
But in the final analysis, it's only God that knows where we're at spiritually. So only God can help us. I pray that we would learn to use the word of God in that way. We don't have to get in arguments with people. We need to just say, well, this is what God says. Well, I don't believe that. Well, Lord, help us to understand that you overcome unbelief through the preaching of truth. It doesn't matter if they believe it or not. You use the truth to bring about conviction. May you do that today. May you convict us in our hearts of our sin where we have not applied ourselves to the preaching of God's word or to the teaching of God's word. Forgive us. Bring us to the place of obedience. Not just hearers of the word, says James, but doers of the word. Because if we're only hearers and not doers, then have we really heard? No. We must be doers. That proves that we've heard. And there's too many people in our day, maybe we're sitting here as one of them, that like to listen to sermons, but don't care much about obeying. Like to hear teaching from the Bible, but don't obey it. Lord, change our hearts. Be that convicting sword of the Spirit that the Word of God is. And change us for your glory and for our own good. We pray these things. Amen.